you know, part of who he is that draws that kind of affection. And so often when we try to just believe harder, try harder, often that just gets us deeper into a pit, deeper into a slump. And what we need to do is, okay, who is this man? Like, I know I've read about him so much, and I've heard about him for all these years, but perhaps I need a fresh look. Perhaps I don't know him for who he truly is. Maybe I only know a little bit of who he is, and if I see him more clearly, I affection will fall. That's the beauty of Jesus, and this will not fail. Even if I try really hard to get to know Lydia, there will be a point where we will be disillusioned with one another because we're human and we're fallen. Nobody's going to be perfect. But the beauty about Jesus is that it's a perfect God. So the more you see him, the more perfection you see, the more absolute beauty, absolute truth, absolute love, justice, righteousness, compassion. It's like the absolute essence of all those things that are good, they are distilled into the form of a human. And the more you get to know this person, the more you get to see him for who he is, there is no choice but to fall in love with him. That's how we were designed. That's how we were made to react and respond to this God who's perfect. And so, let me give you an analogy. I was to bring up to the stage. Uh, let, me, let me let me grab this. So, if I was to grab this chair, and if I was to tell Daniel, okay, Daniel, I want you to sit on this chair. And Daniel would have to first look at it. He's not just going to sit on whatever he told him to sit on, right? He's going to look at it, and he has to, in his mind, calculate: Can it take my weight? <laughs> There's nothing about your weight. It has more to do with the chair. It's more to do with the chair. If the chair doesn't look like it's going to hold this weight, you should not sit on it. In the same way, it's not how hard he believes that it's going to hold his weight. It's actually the integrity of the actual object. Right? It has everything to do with how stable, how solid, how reliable this chair is. It has nothing to do with Man, then I'm just gonna believe harder, and it's gonna hold you up. It's a matter of faith, like magic. Somehow, it's gonna hold your weight. It has nothing to do with that. It has everything to do with: Is this chair solid? Can it take my weight? And in the same way, when it comes to our faith, we need to understand that the object of our faith is worthy, and it is solid, reliable, unfailing, unchanging through any and every circumstance. The more we realize that this is a solid object for us to bank on, for us to put all our eggs into, the more we're going to be able to fully give ourselves to this person, Jesus Christ. Does that make sense? So it's less about trying harder, more about the actual object of our faith. The more we understand this person, Jesus Christ, the more we are able to give ourselves to him fully. This is the God who in our biggest moments of failure and our biggest moments of sin, he's the God who sees us and who says, my grace is sufficient and my power is made perfect in your weakness. He's the God who says, come to me all you who are weary and burdened and I'll give you rest. He's the God who says, there's no power in hell or heaven, nothing in all creation that can separate you from the love that I have for you. This is the God who says, I will never leave you Father may forsake you, and mother may abandon you, but I will never leave you. This is that kind of God. And every word that he speaks, every way in which he manifests himself, it draws closer to him. 
allow us to fall more and more in love with him. And so today the text, sorry, but that was kind of a big intro. Um, we're going to go into the text, and today's message is called The Calling of Levi. It's very simply The Calling of Levi. Why did I title it that? That's what my Bible says. That's the beginning uh, under which that passage falls under. So I'm going to be super creative and just call it The Calling of Levi. We're going to be talking about two different ways in which Levi was called. The first way is it's a call to repent. And the second way is a call into joyful, emphasis on joyful call to joyful communion. So there's two things we're going to focus on today. If we go back to our passage, I'm just going to be reading from that idea that a lot of people do that missing, but I like them as well. So um, I'm just going to be reading from an NIV. It says, once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. A large crowd came to him and began to teach them. And as he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. So this is someone who's called Levi. He's going to be later be called Matthew. He's going to be known as Matthew. He's one of Jesus' disciples. And the place where God just happened to stumble upon him was when he was sitting in this tax collector's booth. Now let me give you a little bit of back, uh, background context and what a tax collector does. It's not just someone who gets your taxes. I, I don't... Uh, um, yeah, yeah, he's a tax collector. <laughs> collecting taxes. But it's not just that. It is actually something that was very controversial, especially in the times of Jesus. And this is the reason why. Israel, as a people, they were once free people. But in this time, they're under the rule, the empire of the Romans. And how does Rome choose to kind of exert their power over these people? It's not just militarily, it's not just, you know, different ways, but it's also financially. And if a Roman was to go to an Israelite and say, okay, I need you to give me X percent of your income, your money, of your gains, of your harvest, whatever it is, they'll be like, no, you know, okay. So one of the ways that the Romans found a way around this to sidestep this issue, they found a loophole, and that was, what if we get an Israelite to get these taxes on our behalf? We say no to them, but they're less likely to offer resistance when it's one of their own who's getting the taxes from them. And so this is what a tax collector is. It's not just someone whose occupation is to collect taxes. It's someone who society-wise is seen as a traitor. Someone who is betraying their own people. And additionally, it wasn't just that he's an agent for the Roman Empire who's oppressing us. Not only that, the only way that they could actually make money and not just, you know, be an errand boy for, um, you know, for, for the Roman authorities it was they would actually hike up what they were getting from people. So if the Romans were asking, hey, I just I need 20% of everything that they make, everything that they own, everything that they grow, everything, 20%. The only way that they could make money was like, okay, I'm gonna charge them 25%. That five extra is mine to keep. And that's how they would make their gains. And so this was not just somebody who was seen as a traitor to their nation, but this is somebody who was making an earning, making a living out of Cheating his people to giving him more. And that was how he got his due. So in the midst of him doing exactly that was when Jesus stumbled upon him. I don't know about you guys, but if Jesus ever stumbles upon me, I'm hoping it'll be like when I'm on my best behavior. Like when, when things look right and I'm put together and I am doing my cuties and I'm like, I'm raising my hands in worship and it looks all Christian and good and it's, you know, speaks fan. 
I, I would hope that that's when Jesus would stumble upon you. But it happens to be that he stumbled on Levi when he was doing exactly what he, he shouldn't do. In the midst of his sin. In the midst of, like, it's like how you want people not to happen upon you. And it was in that moment that Jesus stumbled upon me. And I don't know what Jesus saw when he saw Levi. Um, I really don't know. He might have been like, you know, what is this guy doing? Or he looks like a decent person. Or he looks like he would make a great disciple in the future. He looks like he's going to have authority. But more, more likely, he just simply saw somebody who was on the road to destruction. Who was digging his own grave. Who didn't know what he was doing. But unless he intervened, there was no hope for this person. And often this is not how we want to think about ourselves. But that is... It's like what happened when Jesus stumbled upon us. No matter how well put together, no matter how obedient we were, how rule-abiding we were, when Jesus stumbled upon us, he didn't see somebody who was like, oh, well, they make straight A's. They're going to make a great Christian. No, like, most likely Jesus looked upon us and said, this is someone who's on the road to destruction. And if I do not intervene, they're lost. It is in that moment that Jesus, without asking any questions, without getting any resumes or any promises about future, being a future apostle or disciple, all he said when he looked at him was follow me. He said, follow me, and then Levi immediately got up and followed him. But before we move on, I have to say that the exact words that he said was follow me. And although we kind of gloss over this, but the fact is that Jesus is calling into the kingdom. It isn't, hey, look, I'm going to make your life better. Or, hey, like, I know you're facing this problem right now, and if you choose to come with me, then I'll make sure that gets taken care of. It's not an invitation into self-improvement. It's not an invitation to, I'm going to fulfill your dreams. I'm going to, I know what desires you have in your heart, and I'll just make sure that you know I work with you. And if you work with me, you scratch my back, I scratch yours kind of. That's not how it works. All Jesus said is follow me. He didn't make any other promises. He didn't say life would be great. He didn't say that everything would be smooth sailing from here on out. All he said was follow me. My guess is that he saw someone who wasn't just on the road to destruction, but someone who was following something else or someone else. Now, if he's sitting in his tax booth, he's probably not aware that what he's doing then is serving a different God. And often we don't think about it that way. We're like, look, I'm just doing my job. All I'm doing is I'm trying to get by, doing my job, clocking in, clocking out. I just don't want to, I don't want any problems. But what Jesus saw is somebody who was following something else. Perhaps self-fulfillment, perhaps greed, perhaps self-independence, perhaps glamour or riches. He was following something or someone other than Jesus. And that's why it's so important that he says, follow me. Follow a person. Not an idea, not even a religion. He's asking him to follow a person, follow me. And often, in our good intentions, and in our walking in faith, we forget that all of this is, yes, it's being Christian, yes, it's acting Christian, yes, it's making the right Christian decision. Yes, it is 
doing the right Christian service, but ultimately it's following the person. It's following Jesus Christ. That's all there is to it. The same way that he said, follow me to Levi, he's saying, follow me to us as well. The call to repentance is a call to follow a person. No matter where he leads us, no matter what kind of options there are out there, no matter if we have to take up a cross as well, he's simply calling us to follow him. That is the first thing, is the call to repent. But second thing is that he calls Levi into joyful communion. If you take out the text once again, in verse 15, it says, Well, Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house. So we change scene. Already Jesus is chilling with his tax collector, right? He's at his home, he's having dinner, and then Levi invites all of his friends in to have fellowship with him. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and quote-unquote sinners, most likely in some translations as prostitutes as well, were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. When the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with the tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said to them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have come, I have not come to call them righteous, but sinners. What happened immediately after Levi got up from his tax and got up and followed Jesus is Levi, I don't know how exactly this conversation happened, but he invited Jesus into his home. Now often when we choose to follow Jesus, we would rather kind of keep a safe distance, delightful, mess with my life too much, don't rearrange too much in my life, don't confront too much in my life. I need to kind of like a safe distance. I don't want you all up in my business just yet. I kind of want you at a safe distance. And we'll sort things out with time, you know, like, but let me figure this out first. That's not what it means to follow me. Follow me means inviting him in to your most intimate, in our hearts. So he not only invited Jesus into his home to fellowship with him, he also invited all his friends. This means that Levi is not ashamed of seeing Jesus. Sometimes in our walk, we say we follow Jesus, and we do. And we're very well intentioned about it. We try to be good about it. But sometimes there's a sense of like, I don't want people to know that I'm you know? <laughs> like, as long as I look really Christian, I'm not overly Christian, or all my people who don't know Jesus, right, don't feel like I know you, we can laugh at the same things, we can do the same things, and I don't need to invite Jesus into this whole thing, um, I think we're good. But Levi wasn't under this impression. He not only invited Jesus into his home, he invited all his friends to meet him. These are the most unlikely people that would gel with Jesus. You know, like if I were someone like him, I would be like, maybe I'll, I'll introduce him to my safe friends first. Safe friends. Or friends that I'll okay with, you know, it's like a step. And then maybe like the other friends, I'll invite them in. But he just went straight forward. He invited all his friends, people who seemed 
as far away from being religious or righteous as possible. And it was these people that he decided to invite in and dine with Jesus. And this kind of crowd, my guess is that it wasn't a good somber, like, all right, we're not going to say anything offensive in the heart And it was probably not like that. It was probably people who have never stepped into the temple, ever stepped into the church, ever stepped into a religious kind of gathering. These are outcasts. People who didn't have the right language, probably didn't have the right tone, probably stepped all over people's boundaries, asked things that were inappropriate, like, these were probably these kind of people. In the midst of it, it seems like Jesus was having a good time. Like, he felt right at home in the midst of it. And sometimes we're trying to clean up our act before we invite Jesus into it. But Levi did the exact opposite. He brought the messiest of his messiest friends and just had Jesus dine with him. And they were having a good time. Now the people that were not having a good time were the Pharisees who saw them chilling together. They had a problem with this. This is Jesus, a rabbi, well-respected, Especially if you're known as somebody who keeps the law. A big component of keeping the law is keeping yourself pure. Pure not just by what you do, but by association as well. Who you hang out with, who you touch, who you are in close proximity to. It all matters. It's all like a heavenly tally kind of keeping. And if you are seeing the wrong kind of people, or breaking bread with the, the, right, the wrong people, it's like going to be counted against you. And that's exactly what the Pharisees were doing. Like, how in the world is Jesus, who is a well-respected man, somebody who teaches the law, somebody who comes into the temple, how is this rabbi having dinner with the worst of the worst? Isn't he going to get impaled? Isn't he going to get contaminated? Isn't he going to get you know, somehow infected by their sin or their darkness or whatever? And Jesus seems to be okay with it. This is the thing about Jesus. He was never afraid to invade the darkest or the most improbable or the most impossible kind of situations. He seemed to be very at home. And not just that, Jesus is the kind of person who didn't get infected by darkness, but he seemed to infect people with light instead. So it was almost like his purity was what became contagious and not people's impurity. And so the Pharisees, when they're seen eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat the tax collectors and sinners? And hearing this, Jesus said to them, it is not the healthy need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. What Jesus isn't saying here, it isn't, look, these tax collectors and these sinners, uh, they are unhealthy. So as someone who is a physician or a doctor, this is the so like, you guys are healthy. You guys don't need me. That's not what he was saying. What Jesus was saying is, all of you guys are unhealthy. All of you guys are sinners. All of you guys need a physician. And you, who think you don't need me, you should be eating with me as well. It wasn't love. You guys are good. They're bad, so I'm going to go do that. That's not what he was saying. He was saying, all of you guys are falling short. All of you guys need to know me. All you guys need to spend time with me and fellowship with me. And it's you as well that should be eating here with me. You are also sick and you need a physician. Because when we first read this, we think, oh, okay, he's kind of low-key just saying the tax collectors. <laughs> That's 
not what's happening. He's low-key missing everybody, technically, right? Including us. And that's kind of like the, the sneaky thing about pride and arrogance and self-sufficiency is that we think we're above his charity. We're above his pity or mercy. When it is all of us who need to be spending time with him. And it wasn't just like a demure time they were having together. They were having fun together. Jesus liked to have fun. I know it sounds like blasphemy, but Jesus liked to have a good time. He liked to laugh with people. He liked to break bread with people. It wasn't just, you know, like the things that were sacred and then everything else he kind of stayed away from. For him, everything was sacred. And Jesus in the picture of being sacred. So he was having joyful, joyful communion with these people. Now, communion means oneness. It doesn't just mean we're in the same vicinity, we're breathing the same kind of air. And we call this communion or fellowship. It is oneness. It's coming together as one. And for that to happen in a sustainable way, in a way that won't kill your soul, it means that there must be something refreshing this person, of Jesus. Now, in my walk, personally, for me, I put very high priority on enjoying my time with Jesus. Like, it's not just I, I do the right things and I check all my boxes, but I feel like if I don't enjoy this person, Jesus, this thing is not going to last. It's only going to be a matter of time before I'm like, you know what? I'm not really doing that much for you, you know? You know, and I'll just walk away. I know that that's my sinful nature. And I know that God's desire for me as well is to enjoy him as well. I think sometimes in our religious kind of thinking, we think, okay, becoming a Christian means being a really miserable person. Like, really getting everything fun out of your life and then, like, doing all this boring Christian stuff. And that makes you a different Christian. That's a terrible witness, by the way. Like a miserable Christian, a person who's just like, oh, I hate this, but uh, I guess I'll believe in Jesus. Oh, I guess I'll worship Jesus. That's such a horrible witness. It's supposed to be life-giving. It's supposed to be a fresh, uh, a fresh breath air. <laughs> it's supposed to bring life. It's supposed to restore joy and dignity and worth. It's supposed to... Christian people are supposed to be the most the people who are most alive because they know the source of life. They're one with the source of life. They're one with the source of joy. They're one with the one who delights over us. Christians need to enjoy God. We need to delight in Him. And not this life. Just like, I'm going to put a holy smile on my you know, no, like like legitimate joy, legitimate joy, legitimate delight. That's the kind of stuff that you cannot fake. Like if you have your delight and joy in the Lord, it's going to show. It's going to come out of like something like burst out, out of all the seams. It's going to come out of your pores. Like you, you, you see when somebody's in love, like they cannot hide it. Like, when they're deep in love, you're like, oh my gosh, you stop talking about this person. Like, I'm so sick of it. And this person's like, just keeps gushing on and on about it. Oh my gosh, but he's so perfect. And like, 
just what you give to me in a day, and oh my gosh, you're so considerate, and you're like, oh my gosh, like, shut up. <laughs> I am so done with this. And it's like this person who's fully in love can't help it. It's almost like a sickness. <laughs> like, they can't help it. They don't care if they're being annoying. They don't care if you've heard it a hundred times. A person who's in love, they won't be able to hide it. But then when it comes to people who are in love with the Lord, like, we're very good at hiding it somewhere. You know, like, we're like, people will be able to tell that we're in love with Jesus. God. Um, it might be because we haven't learned to delight in him. We haven't learned to enjoy his presence. We haven't learned to sit around the table in conversation with him and invite him in. This is, uh, I was reading a book on my way on my flight over, and it's called, um, it's called Worship by A.W. Tozer. And this is something that he just happens to coincide with this passage. And this is what he's talking about, the Pharisees. And I wish I could say that how Pharisees think and believe and walk their faith, I wish I could say that it's very distant from, from ourselves. But in reality, it's actually, it strikes a very familiar it says, they were religious in their daily life. They were outwardly pious and well acquainted with the forms of worship. But within their beings were attitudes and faults and the hypocrisies, which caused Jesus to describe them, describe them as whitewashed sepulchers. The only righteousness they knew and understood was their own outward form of righteousness, based on the maintenance of a fairly high level of external morality. Because they thought of God as being as stern and as austere and unforgiving as they themselves were, their concept of worship was necessarily low and unworthy. To a Pharisee, the service of God was a bondage, which he did not love, but from which he could not escape without a loss too great to bear. God, as the Pharisees saw him, was not a God easy to live with, so their daily religion became grim and hard, with no trace of true love in it. It can be said about us as humans that we try to be like our God. If he's conceived to be stern and exacting and harsh, so will we be. The blessed and inviting truth is that God is the most winsome of all beings, and in our worship of him, we should find unspeakable pleasure. The living God has been willing to reveal himself to our seeking hearts. He would have us know and understand that he is all love and that those who trust him need never know anything but that love. We're going to begin to reflect the God that we worship. And that's just that's just a fact. We become what we behold. If what we are beholding is a God who is unforgiving, a God who is keeping tally, a God who is demanding allegiance and demanding these gestures of obedience, and that's who we think we're worshiping. That's the kind of people that we will become. But if we are worshiping a God who is gushing in his love for us, who doesn't think that any extreme gesture is too big of a gesture of love. You know, Kristen said today, even to the giving of his own son, that's what he said earlier today in the service, he did not count that as too big of a gesture because that's how much he loved us. This is the kind of God that we worship, the kind of God who loves to delight in us, 
who is for us, who is love and pleasure and delight and life and lightness and joy. This is the kind of God that we worship. And the more that we get to know a God like this, the more we will also become like this as well. And I promise you, this is the kind of God that we believe in. Our Christian walk will be a lot easier. Worship will be so much easier. We won't have to force or fabricate emotion. We won't have to grit our teeth and try to get ourselves to do the right thing, to do the Christian thing. It will be just like a person who's in love. They can't help but do things out of love for the object. Now, this is what I want to end with. And it's this question, whatever happened to Levi? So we've got a little bit of a snippet here. It was only like four or five verses. So whatever happened to him? This was someone who until then knew nothing but the tax collector's booth. This is someone who after hearing the two words, follow me, this was his turning point in life. And he went on to live a life of following in the steps of the person he said he would follow. This is someone who didn't live perfectly because he's one of the one of the ones who fleed when Jesus was arrested. He didn't live life perfectly. But it's someone who lived a life that was faithful to the end. He later went on to be known as Matthew. He wrote the first gospel that is in our New Testament. Matthew means God's gift. I don't know who chose this name for him. For him. I don't know if it was Jesus or if it was his idea, but, but can you imagine somebody who used to sit in tax collector's booth, now choosing to define himself, who he is, by the name I am God's gift. I am God's gift. And not only did he just write the part of the New Testament and live a life that was worthy of the gospel, he preached the gospel wherever he went. And some accounts say that he was martyred in Ethiopia. He went all the way to Ethiopia to preach about this God who changed his life for the two words follow. This is how his life ended. Someone who chose to leave it all behind and follow this man, Jesus. And sometimes I wonder, and I ask myself this question, it's a bit of a morbid question, but how will my life be? How will my life be? I don't know anything for sure. I don't know. I don't know, I don't know what will happen in my life. Am I going to continue to be Christian? Am I going to continue to be Christian for years, 30 years, 50 years, depending on how long I live. How will I, how will my life end? In what state will my heart be in? Will I still be on fire for the Lord? Or will I fizzle out? Will I still be in love with Jesus? Or will I have become religious and stern and austere like these Pharisees? You would look at somebody fellowshipping with Jesus shouldn't be seen together. 
And I don't know for sure how my life is going to end and what state my heart will be. But I know that I have a much better chance of making it all the way to the end with a heart that is tender, with a heart that is soft towards the Lord. If I take seriously the call that he made to leave on me, the call to repent, repent continuously, it's not just a one-time one time deal. We repent continuously. Why? Because we sin continuously. We stray continuously. We idolize other things continuously. The call to repent, the words of Jesus to follow, leave your tax booth behind you, follow me. It's not just going to happen once in your life. It's going to happen over and over and over again. He's going to say, leave your pride behind and follow me. He's going to say, you leave unforgiveness behind and follow me. You leave your greed and self-interest and follow me. He's going to confront you over and over and over again in your life. And he's going to call you to repent so that I can follow him. And the second thing was the call to joyful communion. I cannot make it all the way to the end if I don't understand Every part, every time that I spend with Jesus is painful and tortured and routine. I know I'll not be able to do it this time. But I know if, man, if I find joy in the presence of this man, if I feel like I'm not being drained, but I'm getting filled up in the presence of this man, if every word that he speaks is not something that is condemning, but it's life-giving, then I feel like I have a much better chance making all the way to the end. Not just without losing my salvation. I don't know what your particular theology regarding that would be. So we're not talking about salvation. We're talking about passion, wholeheartedness. We're talking about joy. And that's how I want my life to be. That's what I feel like a life of following Jesus should look like. And I'm hoping it's the same for you. And no matter what kind of circumstances come your way, Change happens all the time. Life circumstances happen all the time. There's nothing that is guaranteed for us. There's one thing that is constant. That is the person of Jesus. And he doesn't change. He's the same yesterday and forever. No matter what kind of circumstances you've been in the past, in the present, or in the future, that you know nothing about, but God already knows about. This desire to follow Jesus and repent, this desire to follow Jesus into joyful communion, May these things mark our lives. May these things, not our circumstances, not our situations, not things that are out of control, may those things not define our lives, but this person of Jesus Christ, the one who is worthy of us following, the one who is worthy of our affections, of our lives, thus even taking up our crosses. May this be the constant. Father, we come to you today and I don't know what kind of situations different people might be facing. It could be times of testing, it could be times of dryness, it could be times of complacency, it could be times of joy, it could be answered prayer requests, it could be transitions, it could be decision making, it could be all kinds of I know, Father, that you see where each one of us are at. 
You see every one of our circumstances. You see the state of our hearts. You read our every thought. You hear our every prayer. And our desire, God, is to follow you wherever you take me. Lead us, Lord, to the place of repentance where we never get so arrogant, never get so big-headed, never get so self-complacent and self-reliant that we forget that we need you, God. And we also falling into the place of joyful communion. Lord God, if there is drudgery and dryness and obligation that has marked the way that we spend time with you, Father, would you breathe afresh in this part of our lives? Would you teach us, Father, how to delight in you? Will we fix our eyes on the God who is not a Pharisee, a God who loves, a God who cares, a God who's able to give and do more than we could ever imagine or ask. May this be the object of our affection. And as we fix our eyes on you, and as we allow the sword of your spirit, the word of truth, to pierce our hearts, may we see a transformation that comes from the inside out. Permanent change that happens within us, Lord, that begins to flow out into our behavior, begins to flow out into the ways that we think, begins to flow out in the ways that we see one another, the ways that we see our current circumstances. May everything be painted by this truth, the truth of who you are, the God who is unfailing at every turn, the God who exceeds our expectations in every one of our needs, and the God who is faithful all the way to the end. We thank you, Father, for all these things in Jesus' name.